0: From WPFW News in Washington, this is Monday Morning QB, a news program with a point of view. Today is
1: Monday, May 15th, 2023. I'm Sue Goodwin. And I'm Chris Bingert-Drowns. Today on the show, an update on the debt ceiling showdown and President Biden's proposal to tax the rich.
2: No one earning less than $400,000 is gonna see a single penny in in their taxes under me, not a single penny. They haven't yet and they won't. Plus, the lasting impact
1: of COVID-19 now that the federal public health emergency is over. Plus, we're in pledge drive this morning. Become a supporter of this great radio station by calling 202-588-9739 and making a pledge. You can also visit us online at WPFW.org. Click on the big red donation button.
0: All that and more. Stay with us. This is Monday Morning QB. I'm Sue Goodwin. Fears of a U.S. Debt Default are mounting as a deadline to raise the debt ceiling draws near. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen continues to warn that the country could run out of money and fail to pay its bills as soon as June 1, leaving politicians just over two weeks to break through the current stalemate. Speaking last week from Japan ahead of the G7 meeting of finance ministers, which starts Friday, Yellen warned of the consequences if President Biden and Republican lawmakers fail to reach a deal.
3: If Congress doesn't raise the debt ceiling, we face economic and financial catastrophe one way or the other. And that's why our focus is on making sure that Congress does raise the debt ceiling. I feel that that's something we're going to succeed at doing, and we're
0: working hard to make sure that 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 gets done. It remains to be seen how the president will respond to Republican demands to make drastic cuts in spending before they will approve any hike in the nation's debt limit. But one thing is clear. The president wants large corporations and the wealthy to do more to help offset the federal deficit. He made that very clear last week during remarks at Westchester
2: Community College in Valhalla, New York. Look, I, I don't have anything against Wall Street or hedge funds executive, but just pay your taxes, man. No, I'm serious. Hedge funds executive pay a lower tax rate than the middle-class worker who works for them. No one earning less than $400,000 is going to see a single penny in their taxes under me, not a single penny. They haven't yet, and they won't. If you're making — if you're making more than 400, well, start to pay your fair share. Look, instead, we're making the biggest corporation begin to pay their fair share. Just — I'm not talking about 70 percent tax rates. For example, at least pay something. Folks, let me ask you this. Does anyone think we have a fair tax system in America? No. no I'm I'm being deadly earnest. I'm not being a wise guy. <clears throat> in 2020, you got tired of hearing me say this. I pointed out there were 50 major corporations of the 55 of the Fortune 500 companies that paid zero in federal income tax after having made $40 billion in profits. Forty billion. So we instituted and got passed a corporate minimum tax of 15 percent. Well, guess what? You all are paying more than that. Just 15 percent. And it paid for everything we did. Look, I proposed a billionaire minimum tax. There are now about, went from about 760, I think the number was, to around 1,000 billionaires in America. Well, that's great. If you want to be a billionaire, you can make it. I'm, I'm not one of these guys that say you shouldn't be able to do that. And if you want to be if you're a multimillionaire, I'm not trying to say that can't happen. But at least pay something. The average tax paid by the thousand billionaires in America individually. The average tax paid is 8%, EIGHT, 8%. No billionaire should be paying a lower tax rate than a school teacher or a firefighter. <laughs> There's nothing radical about this. That's why my budget also fully funds the Internal Revenue Service. You know, and it's kind of interesting. Republicans have been consistent for the last 10 years cutting the number of IRS agents. I wonder why. (laughs) So, we now have legislation that passed that's going to — that's in our budget that says we're going to beef up the number of IRS agents to thoroughly look at the taxes of billionaires in America. According to the Congressional Budget Office, a bipartisan office, they estimate that just that alone would raise another $200 billion a year. Of course, President Biden isn't the only politician
0: to call for the rich to pay their fair share. The idea of using taxes to advance economic equity in the United States reaches deep into our nation's history. During the late 19th century, various groups, including the Populist Party, favored the establishment of a progressive income tax at the federal level. Eventually that led to the 16th Amendment, which first authorized Congress to institute a graduated income tax on the earnings of American workers. Livia Gershon is a writer based in New Hampshire and has been covering the story of how our nation taxes the wealthy for some time and the failure of current policies to fully achieve the goal that everyone pay their fair share. Back in April 2019, she spoke with our former host and news director, Eskia Mohammed, and explained it's an idea that still has wide popular support and that many Americans are open to ideas that go further in taxing the rich.
3: Um, I think uh, most Americans really think that taxing their is a good idea. If you look at the polling on some of the proposals that have been, been coming out, it's uh, maybe surprising from what you hear from policy wonks, but, but most voters seem to think it's a pretty good idea, I think.
4: Well, why does it seem to be so unattainable?
3: Well, I mean, I think rich people don't like it, um, and so it can be difficult because, of course, rich people have so much power in our in our politics and in the way that we talk about these things. Um, but it's certainly something that we've achieved before as a country um, and, and uh, hopefully can achieve again.
4: You say we've achieved this before. How did progressives initially win income taxes on the rich?
3: Um Well, the first income tax was um, had to be the product of a constitutional amendment because actually back then the Supreme Court, like we're kind of seeing the return of now, was uh, deeply opposed to any kind of populist and progressive uh, ideas. So um, there actually had to be a constitutional amendment, um, but it was it was so strongly supported by people all over the country um that it it did go through um, in nineteen thirteen. Um, and that was the product of people who were kind of horrified at how the rich people were taking so much power in the country at that time. So there's, um, there's an awful lot of parallels to today, I think.
4: Uh, recent proposals from Elizabeth Warren and Congresswoman Cortez uh, signaled what may be changing attitudes about taxation. Where are we now?
3: I think that people are even more focused than they might once have been. I think taxing the rich has been somewhat popular for a while when you you look at polling. Um, But I think uh, there's been changes over a number of years, um, maybe starting maybe with the Great Recession and the Occupy movement that a lot of people are coming to see inequality as uh, just an enormous issue in the country. Um, And I think maybe politicians are finally catching up with that. and The the Democratic Party is beginning to kind of embrace policies that that reflect a real concern um, about the the rich getting so incredibly rich.
4: Giving their money away in either taxes or wages or in any other way is Mm -hmm. not how rich people got to be rich. So what can break their stranglehold on people who are not rich, not being able to, Uh, enforce any taxes against them.
3: Yeah, I think that's a a really important question is that we, I think almost some people are in despair that how can you ever get rich people to to give up their power because they, they seem so powerful. Uh, and i think it's it's important to remember number 1 that we've done that before that the consensus for a very um long time in the middle of the 20th century was that of course um rich people should pay decent wages and should pay their fair share in taxes um and i think we we've seen a concerted political effort by the republican party um to to turn all that back and um in particular when it comes to getting the rich to pay their fair share um, they, they need, to, tax laws need to be enforced. And, uh, there's a, a really good, uh, ProPublica investigation about how the IRS has just been cut. Its enforcement, particularly on rich people, has just disappeared thanks to, to tax cuts, to, to cuts in the, in the funding for it, I'm sorry. Um, that they've, they've, uh, put forward. That's all, all the Republican Party's doing.
4: <laughs> if the rich are not paying their fair share as it is under the tax code, uh, many are even evading the taxes that they owe. Is that a problem, and how can that be corrected?
3: Yeah, no, I think that's a, a huge problem. And again, we need better enforcement of the tax codes that exist. We need the IRS to be going in there. and and doing audits and keeping track of of these things. I think it's actually um, surprising how little rich people really pay when you consider all the taxes if you're not just looking at income tax but also looking at sales tax and local property taxes and things like that. They really don't pay that much as a percentage of their income or, or certainly of their wealth um, compared to regular people. Um and it's it's absolutely um uh, unbelievably unjust in, to my mind that they don't pay much more um, I think to some extent it's a question of do you think that rich people deserve to have the money um, that they have there's um, the economist Stephanie Kelton has this great line where she says um, it's not just that the rich aren't paying their fair share it's that they're taking more than their fair share from the economy because of the way that they you know, have, have structured many things
4: What do you think is the fair share that the wealthy should pay?
3: You know, I don't know exactly what the right number is, but I think um, what what really needs to happen is sort of a change in view. That to to say, uh, the government is going and taking the money that these people have made. I think we we need to look at how have they made that money, and and how much does the government actually support the the them in making that money through things like patents and uh, copyright laws and the way that. Monetary policy is structured. I mean, there's there's all these things that go into helping rich people to to make all that money that is coming from the government. So it's not like the government is just coming in on top of money that they have somehow made out of uh, you know their own amazing abilities.
4: Their own amazing abilities. The is is it that, or do they just not want some people to have things that having money or having resources would provide. I'm hinting at something that it just seems to me that there, some people think that the poor don't deserve anything that they don't already have
3: yeah i think it's uh it's very disturbing how much um people do blame poor people um for being poor um and i think of course that's that's tied into racism and to the long history of sort of scapegoating and uh assuming that that poor people are are people of color which um is, is of course not in many many poor white people as well um but it's uh it's very complicated how that's become a political uh tool that that people can use but um it certainly uh seems seems terrible to me
4: Lydia Gershon, thank you for your uh, scholarship, your writing on this subject, and thanks for talking with us.
3: Well, thanks so much for taking the time to talk with me. I appreciate it.
0: This is Sue Goodwin reminding you that we are in our Spring Pledge Drive, and here's why. At this time in our political history here in the United States, as multiple forces try to suppress our democracy, we understand that providing you with accurate, timely, and insightful news is an essential service, and we are asking you to make sure we can continue doing just that. WPFW, is a listener-supported, non-commercial radio station, and we are asking you to make a tax-deductible donation today. We ask you to donate whatever you can, and if you can donate at the $120 level, we offer this gift as a thank you. It is the WPFW Paul Robeson 125th Birthday MP3 or cd pack. It's more than 30 hours of listening material, including rare historic recordings of Paul Robeson as an orator, singer, actor, and as a guest interviewed by Pacifica radio hosts, conversations with scholars, journalists, colleagues, and friends of Robeson, including those hosted by our beloved WPFW ancestor, A.C. Byrd. The number to call to donate is 202-588-9739 or simply visit WPFWFM.org to donate what you can. Once again, that number is 202-588-9739 or visit WPFWFM.org and support this station, wpfw. Building a Better World, One Broadcast at a Time. Thank you. Over our nearly five years on the air, Monday Morning QB has tackled big stories, including climate change. Two summers ago, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change published a report issuing a quote, code red for humanity, close quote. The report predicted potentially devastating impacts from fossil fuel emissions within just decades, but also suggested humanity has a small window of opportunity to pull back emissions and halt the steady climb in global temperatures. But what if we fail to make changes to our personal and collective behaviors? What would it mean if humanity knowingly consigns itself to a future of suffering or to one of outright extinction? Reporter Chris Banger Drowns filed this story
1: in August 2021. The end of human civilization and even of the human species is a very real possibility, if climate change continues unabated. But eliminating this self-imposed existential threat requires humanity to fundamentally reshape its economies and cultures, something many humans appear simply unwilling to do. So, while we fight for good climate policy and make changes to our personal habits, we also need to grapple with the moral implications of human destructive behavior. Todd May is professor of philosophy at Clemson University and an author, most recently of A Decent Life, Morality for the Rest of Us. He also works as philosophical advisor for the hit comedy show, The Good Place, where moral conundrums are commonplace. In a 2018 editorial piece for the New York Times, Todd May asks us to ponder a jarring question. Would human extinction be a tragedy? To help us think about the end of civilization and species, he poses a thought experiment. How many human lives would it be worth sacrificing to preserve our most cherished cultural possessions?
5: If the cost of Shakespeare's plays was, say, an innocent child dying, would it be worth it Uh, and I think a lot of folks maybe most folks would say no. Uh, There's an even simpler example which is the example of the Louvre. Let's suppose that the Louvre is on fire and a bunch of firemen come in and they've got a choice they can save all the artworks or they can save some of the people who are in the museum and here I think everybody's going to say let the art go save the people. Which means that a number of the things that we value, we would probably reflectively value less if they were the cost of those things were the lives of other human beings. So the way that what I'm trying to do with that thought experiment is set that idea up so that we can think about the cost of the climate crisis in regards to other things that we value.
1: Clearly the climate crisis is sort of based on our incessant urge to grow our economy and increase our consumption. Can we extend this thought experiment to to include that and say how many human lives are worth sacrificing in order to maintain large amounts of economic growth or high levels of of consumption?
5: I I, I think in that case, it's even easier because these aren't things that we necessarily think of having great value uh, like Shakespeare are but things that are just convenient for us uh, or pleasant for us to have. So if the cost of something pleasant for me to have is going to be the loss of a a person's life, particularly even a person's life that I don't know, that seems a price that to the extent that we can, we should not pay that price. If we think about this reflectively. Now, Chris, it, it, it can get a little bit complicated because much of what we do will have costs in the climate crisis that will affect other people. As one friend of mine put it, this is a storm in which we have no particular port to dock it. But what can I do given that my consumption is going to cause difficulties for people who are innocent and who had, didn't, don't contribute to this at all because it's mostly people right, who are in the poorer nations or in the poorer neighborhoods who pay the cost of the climate crisis. What can I do while still living within, let's say, a meaningful life for myself to limit my consumption and therefore limit the kinds of damage that I'm doing to other people?
1: In your op-ed, you also get at this trade-off between life and some of the artifacts of civilization, whether cultural or economic, in terms of animal life. And, And clearly human civilization is causing ecological collapse in a way that is an existential threat to plant and animal life. Can you walk our listeners through this thought experiment again, but instead of asking how much human sacrifice is worthy to save artifacts of human civilization, how much natural sacrifice is worth sustaining human culture or human economy? Good,
5: Uh, and and it's it's not just to do with uh, the climate crisis and the collapse uh, of of various ecosystems. It's also to do with the kinds of consumptions that we engage in and the pain that those consumptions cause. For instance, uh, factory farming causes enormous suffering to animals. So if we start from the human thought experiment, that it's not okay to have cultural things that we value at the expense of another life, then the question will be, okay, what about non-human lives? How do we think about animal lives? And we have to make distinctions here, and this can get very complicated because some people say, well, look, why would we value, say, a chimpanzee over a mouse? But if we're going to make ethical decisions, we have to do something here. And the standard criterion that's used, and I'm uncomfortable, but I don't know any better one, is what we can call the richness of a life, right? Uh, some people call it, think of it as intelligence, I just think of it as general, general life richness. So that, so if um, there's a question of saving a human being versus say saving a cow, there's a justification for saving the human being, the richness of the life of the human being versus the richness of the life of the cow. But if we're talking about things that we value culturally, now we have to weigh those against, the richness of not just a cow, but sort of millions of cows, other animals that exist in the ecosystem. So with climate collapse, there's so much suffering that this is causing that it would seem that we can't value the human uh, artifacts overall against all of this suffering that we're causing. And if that's the case, uh, then it may be. That And this is the speculation that I I want to insist this is a speculation, because when the article came out, it was misread as a claim. The speculation is that it may be the case that were humans eventually to go extinct, there would actually be a happier planet, less suffering on the planet uh, than if human beings maintain themselves. But at the very least, if we're thinking about the climate crisis, surely we have to limit our consumption right, and limit our CO2 output to the degree to which we can to help non-human animals, not just human beings.
1: You know, Clearly, human extinction would cause some element of human suffering. How do we think about whether or not that human suffering would be worth the mitigation of non-human suffering if our species were to go extinct?
5: And I I, think it's a great question, Chris, uh, and I don't actually have an answer for it. Uh, I think we ought to reflect on that as a question uh, and begin to think about it, but I don't think there's gonna be a simple answer to that. In the piece, what I was really trying to do was say that human extinction can be a tragedy and perhaps a good thing at the same time, which seems like a paradox, right? The tragedy would be the loss of these cultural goods, that that can't be produced otherwise. Uh, The good thing might be the elimination of a certain degree of suffering for non-human animals. If you raise the question, okay, but how do we think about that balance between the non-existence of human beings at some point and uh, the flourishing of animals? What I would say is that's the right question, but I don't really have an answer for it. I'm just trying to open up that discussion.
1: Lastly, I, I suppose the point of this conversation is that eventually we need to flip this thought experiment that we started with on its head, right? We need to ask how much of human civilization do we need to sacrifice in order to save human or non-human life, rather than ask how much human life or non-human life do we need to sacrifice in order to save aspects or artifacts of human civilization. And more specifically, I think I get the sense that we need to sacrifice our notion of quality of life which is so often defined in terms of economic growth or high levels of of consumption. And so my question for you is how should we individually and collectively rethink what it means to live a high quality life in a way that doesn't eventually lead to the demolition of life itself?
5: Chris, this is, I mean, this is a great question. And interesting enough, there have been large, very, but partial, but important answers. So studies have been done on human happiness and what causes human happiness. And what the folks have found is consumption works a bit like addiction. So you consume something and you feel great for a little while, and then you get used to it. And then you've got to consume something else again. Whereas the happiness given by human relationships is at a lower level than the peaks of individual acts of consumption, but at a higher average level, than you would get if you were simply relying on consumption. So long story short, human relationships and connectedness cause more meaningful lives for folks than consumption does. Once we begin to recognize that, the question is not what do we sacrifice among the things that make our lives meaningful, but how do we rethink what makes a life meaningful in such a way as not to involve things that seem as though they're going to contribute to our happiness or the meaningfulness of our lives, but don't actually do that.
1: Todd May, professor of philosophy at Clemson University, and an author, most recently, of A Decent Life, Morality for the Rest of Us. For Monday Morning QB, I'm Chris Bangert-Drowns. One of the other big stories this show has tackled in recent years is, of course, the coronavirus pandemic. That scourge has killed over a million Americans and left millions more sick, mourning, and unemployed. The racially unequal impacts of the pandemic have been well explored on this program and others. In Native communities, the deaths of tribal elders, along with the history and language they possess, led to something of a cultural crisis. Reporter Amara Everine addressed this in a piece from February 2021.
6: Coronavirus has ripped through Native American communities, not only creating a devastating health crisis, but also severing connections to history, culture, and language as the pandemic continues to take the lives of tribal leaders. In Oklahoma, a spokesman for the Muscogee Creek Nation calls it a, quote, cultural book burning a loss of once-living historical record stored up in the bodies of elders. In the Navajo Nation in Arizona, where COVID-19 deaths continue to climb, protecting elders has become the utmost priority. I spoke with Monica Harvey, Executive Director of Defend Our Community, an organization committed to protecting elders in the Navajo Nation in Loop, Arizona. She spoke to me about how she went from working regular shifts at her job to running a necessary organization for her community.
7: I work at Sam's Club, and every morning we would always see lines like it was Black Friday. And every day you see families coming in from the reservation. And if I drive 45 miles to get here, some of them had to drive hours because on the reservation they don't have the grocery stores and the facilities that provide PPE. If we opened at 7, some families would tell me that they leave from home about 2 a.m. just so they can get here.
6: Unfortunately, these trips that stretch for hours in order to just buy food and necessities aren't uncommon. The Navajo Nation, which is actually comparable to the size of West Virginia, only has 13 grocery stores in total. So that means most of the time, food and even water can feel out of reach and COVID-19, which has led to increased food insecurity, has made these long trips just to buy groceries commonplace. When Harvey recognized the toll this was taking on her own community, she decided, with the encouragement of her friend and now board member Ryan, that she would help in any way she could.
7: That's when I decided, all right, you know what, I I work at Sam's Club. I'm here before it opens. I can get some stuff before we open and you know, just gather here and there. It was only supposed to be a one-time delivery thing, but the need for help was so great that eight months later, we're still
6: going. And so what was thought of as a one-time delivery is now a necessary resource for her community.
7: So we didn't tell families to come to us. We went to them. I think that kind of differentiates us from other groups. It just takes one person, I guess, to start something, and then and it just starts to grow. It's just amazing to see, like, it just go from a little ripple, now it's expanding.
6: As they meet elders in their own homes to deliver necessary supplies, they also see the reality of the conditions that some of them are living in.
7: You get to see firsthand how elders are living. They don't have electricity. They don't have running water. Sometimes they don't have running vehicles.
6: In the Navajo Nation, a third of the population does not have running water. This is especially an issue in Loop, Arizona, where Defend Our Community is based.
7: Where we are helping in Loop, there's a lot of windmills and water stations that are not operating right now. They're not working or they're either contaminated. And at some point, they closed the water station down and we didn't know why. And that was like one of the main sources for everybody in the community. So everybody had to travel again off the reservation just to get
6: drinking water. And so over a third of Navajo Nation residents have to travel to a reservation's most populous city or a nearby border town just to access clean water. And with the pandemic, this is especially problematic.
7: We go to homes who don't have running water, and for them, even to get clean water, they have to either be store-bought or they have to go to a well that's not contaminated. We have a lot of uranium mines on the reservation, and that contaminated a lot of water sources. So it's very hard to tell people, wash your hands for 20 seconds. When the water they have, they have to wash their hands in a wash pan.
6: But for many elders... Washing their hands with clean water isn't their only obstacle for preserving their health. It's also simply accessing health care.
7: As far as medical, it's very challenging for my community because the clinic that we had, they closed it because of the pandemic. So now the community members have to travel outside the reservation to a border town and they have to go there to get their medication, their medical needs.
6: The Navajo Nation, which again is comparable to the size of West Virginia, only has six hospitals in total. The underfunding and understaffing of these hospitals has had a devastating impact on Native communities. Nationwide, there was an obvious gap in medical care. Last year, when a Native American health center in Seattle asked for COVID 19 supplies, in return, they were sent a box of body bags. Though Harvey has not been met with such dramatic displays of negligence, she recognizes that many health agencies have offered inadequate care.
7: The lack of medical facilities and medical staff is, it was there. You know, it was so hard to to try to find some type of help. In a way, like, I feel like the whole system, all, all of them, can try to do some type of procedure better.
6: These systemic issues on the federal and state level, as well as in terms of tribal leadership, has contributed to the disproportionate impact of the pandemic on Native communities. With this lack of help, community members often have to take things into their own hands.
7: There's so much more that could be done, you know, and that's why a lot of people on the reservations develop their own grassroots organizations.
6: For Harvey, These existing systematic issues appear to her through her visits to elders. As she provides them with essential items, she also gets to peek into their lives in intimate ways.
7: One that really touched home with me was this elder. She wasn't able to take care of herself. So when we went into her home, her living condition was just so heartbreaking. She had a refrigerator, but it was with expired food. And she had spider webs inside her home, and they were black widow spiders. So we had to go in and try to help her get rid of those spiders. And she would tell us that no one comes out to check on
6: her. And caring for elders is more personal to Harvey than just protecting history, language, and culture.
7: My culture and my language was basically taught to me through like my grandparents and my mom and my dad. And one of the whole reasons we started this too was. I had two elder grandmothers, and just recently, my grandmother contracted the virus, and she didn't win her battle. Sometimes when I drive with my grandma and we're listening to music, we'll kind of sing together, and she'll explain to me what that song means and so forth. And she was one of the main reasons we started this. No matter what, even if they're not related to you, when you lose an elder, it hits in a whole nother way. They hold language, they hold their arts and crafts skill, or their storytelling, or their songs.
6: Harvey, who has suffered from loss, has gained a few grandmas through her journey in Defend Our Community.
7: We have a clan system, so even if they're related to me clan-wise, they'll greet me in a certain way, whether it's their daughter or their grandchild, or they know how to determine how we're related and I'm just like I, I know you're related to me somehow but I'm just going to call you grandma and and most of them are okay with that because they, they know deep down no matter what we're all related.
6: I'm Amara Evering from Monday Morning QB and that was well I'll let her tell you for herself.
7: I'll introduce myself traditionally. Yate am Monica Harvey and Translation is Hello, my name is Monica Harvey. My first clan is Mexican Clan. I am born for Bitter Water Clan. My maternal clan is Black Streak Wood. And my paternal clan is the Towering House Clan. Um, I am the executive director of Defend Our Community.
6: For more information, Visit Defend Our Community on Facebook.
1: We are in Pledge Drive this morning. Support this great radio station and our flagship news show by calling 202-588-9739 or 1-800-222-9739 and making a pledge now. You can also visit our website, wpfw.org, and click on the big Donate Now button. WPFW has been on the air for over 45 years consistently broadcasting music and information that is important to the functioning of our local community. Our station's work is built on shared trust with our listeners, an understanding that we will stand firm through tough times to continue our necessary operations. Just in my four and a half years here at the station, WPFW has thrived through a tough political climate Two government shutdowns, a pandemic, a recession, the biggest protests in a generation, the loss of essential staff, and much more. We are resilient thanks entirely to the generous support of our listeners, to whom we owe a great responsibility. Help us continue our work of broadcasting jazz and justice in the nation's capital by making a pledge today. We have a goal of $500 this hour. Call 202 588 1-800-222-9739, 1-800-222-9739, That's 202 9739, and pledge your support today. If you're out of area, call 1 800 222 9739. That's 1 800 222 9739. Or anywhere in the world, hop online and visit us at wpfw.org. Click the big red Donate Now button on the side of the screen. Back to the show. Legislators in multiple states are invoking a widespread labor shortage to push bills that would weaken long-standing child labor laws. Just last week, Republican lawmakers in Ohio approved a bill allowing 14 and 15-year-olds to work until 9 p.m., even during the school year. And Iowa lawmakers passed a GOP proposal to allow teenagers to work longer hours and even serve alcohol. Similar proposals to relax child labor laws have also been advanced in Minnesota, Missouri, Nebraska, and Oklahoma. For more on this story, Sue Goodwin filed this report back in March.
0: On Monday, March 6th, Governor Sarah Huckabee signed HB 1410 to revise the child labor laws in Arkansas and to create the Youth Hiring Act of 2023. Under the new law, teens as young as 14 seeking work no longer need to get an employment certificate through the Arkansas Department of Labor and Licensing, which verified their age, described their work and work schedule, and included written consent from a parent or guardian. These kinds of documents allow state agencies to keep track of how many minors are working and in what jobs. Reed Mackey is Director of Child Labor Advocacy at the National Consumers League and is Coordinator of the Child Labor Coalition. And he explains what's at risk in removing Arkansas's documentation requirement as defined in the new Youth Hiring Act of 2023.
8: Well, it's essentially dismantling the work permit process that um, that teens go through in Arkansas. And uh, the reason we think that's important is it serves as a as a double check on on child labor that we think you know kids should not be engaged in. So it provides an age verification, and it also the state official looks at the permit and sees what job tasks the, the teen will be doing. So if there's anything there that stands out as dangerous, you know, or forbidden, the the official has the opportunity you know to say something to the parent and the child. So we, between those two double-checks, we think it's an, it's an important part of the process, and uh, we really hate to see it go away.
0: And what makes it even worse is the timing. Sanders signed the bill just weeks after the Department of Labor released the results of an investigation that found 102 children, aged 13 to 17, illegally working dangerous jobs like cleaning meat processing equipment. Ten of those children were working at facilities in Arkansas. Child labor violations have been on the rise since 2015 after declining for years, according to data from the U.S. Labor Department's Wage and Hour Division. In 2022, the Wage and Hour Division found more than 3,800 minors employed in violation of child labor laws, an increase of 37% over the previous year. At the same time, Arkansas is hardly the only state to be showing interest in loosening child labor protections. A bill advancing in Iowa, for example, would allow 14-year-olds to work certain jobs in meatpacking plants and would shield businesses from civil liability if a youth worker is sickened, injured, or killed on the job,
8: the timing is bizarre. Uh, so, and across the country, it, we're seeing—you um, know—we're seeing in multiple states, in about six states—we're seeing bills that would weaken child labor laws and you know ease protections. And um, some of the some of the news has been dramatic. Uh, the U.S. D.O.L. completed an investigation into meatpacking. And found that children were working in eight states and 13 plants, and they were working the graveyard shift, working overnight, and uh, they were using caustic chemicals. One of the children, who was only 13, got burned by the caustic chemicals, and that's what that's what launched the investigation. Um, so we're seeing, you know, we're seeing kids uh, not not just there, but there was an expose in the New York Times that looked that found a lot of kids working in factories. And there was another story about the Hyundai supply chain in Alabama that found kids working in, in metal factories there. So we are seeing uh, kids working in really dangerous uh, um, uh, facilities. And uh, so so for um, states to, to step forward and say, oh, it's time to weaken child labor laws, it just makes no sense at all.
0: The New York Times expose Reed Mackey is referring to was the result of an investigation that found that migrant children are working in some of the most dangerous and often illegal jobs in the country
8: yeah the um yeah the Times found that um a lot of the kids working in the factories were unaccompanied minors, and we know that for the last four years the numbers of those kids has been increasing, and they are extremely vulnerable, you know they're not here with the parent. They might be here with a guardian or someone you know who's acting like a guardian um but they are they're very vulnerable to to being exploited and uh you know these are kids from mostly from Central America or Mexico, but mostly Central America, and they don't know what they're getting into you know they're going into these factories and they have no idea how how horrible the conditions are so um you know we're very concerned about them, um but we're also very concerned that. Uh, that children who go into detention are, are, you know, they they face a lot of negative impacts. It's a very, very horrible thing to do to a child. So we don't want to see uh, an overreaction where the kids are held in detention facilities longer than they need to be. Um, So we're very concerned about that as well.
0: So if Reed Mackey believes it just makes no sense at all to choose this as a time to weaken child labor laws, we asked him, what is driving this current push?
8: Well, I think it's a combination of factors, but one of them is that there's a perceived labor shortage. The national unemployment rate is pretty low. It's, you know, 3.4 percent the last time I saw. And uh, so employers are, are, are you know, crying about the lack of workers. But that doesn't mean we should, we should um, you know, balance that labor shortage on the backs of teen workers. Um, it just seems it just seems like a really bad idea to to us um and those you know those protections were hard won they took a, they took decades to develop and to put in place and um you know just because we have a temporary worker shortage now we 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 can't be dismantling um our child labor laws um to help employers employers can raise wages if they really are having trouble finding workers that's a more appropriate response
0: especially when you consider the possible impact on kids when labor laws are broken. We know that certain jobs are considered to be particularly hazardous for workers under 18 or detrimental to their health or well-being, and then there is the impact child labor laws can have on education.
8: Yeah, it absolutely absolutely is a concern. You know, one of the things that Hannah Dreyer reported in the New York Times was that kids were falling asleep in the classroom. Some kids needed hospitalization. They were so exhausted. Um, we're, we're very concerned that, that uh, you know, kids who work, there, there seems to be a dividing line. Uh, 20 hours a week is uh, a dividing line that some researchers have found, that uh, once they work beyond that during a school week, their grades start to drop and their school completion rate starts to drop. So we definitely do not want to see kids working to the extent that, that it's impacting their education.
0: And yet, some of these new laws that are being considered could make it more likely that working could have a negative influence on a student's schooling.
8: Some of these laws that they're proposing would would extend the workday till 9 p.m., and uh ki- you know kids would leave school say at 3 they'd drive to work they'd work till 9 then they have to drive home so for the most part they're beginning their homework at 10 p.m. which you know is too late it's just too late to to expect a kid to to do their homework and then get 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 some sleep and show up at school the next day without having enormous fatigue
0: The National Consumers League has long played a leading role in the fight to protect children at work. Its founder, Frances Kelly, organized the buying power of shoppers to create incentives for industries to improve their labor practices. And she pushed to pass laws requiring inspections in factories, using child workers, and limiting the number of hours women and children could work every day.
8: Yeah, well, the National Consumers League helped to bring about many child labor protections in the early 1900s that kind of led to the Fair Labor Standards Act in 1938, which which outlawed most forms of child labor. And um, about 30 years ago, uh, NCL formed the Child Labor Coalition, which brings together 39 groups, and we fight for systemic change to protect children. And uh, one of our focuses has been um, protecting child farm workers, we have crazy child labor laws when it comes to uh to children who work in agriculture and we allow 12 year olds to work unlimited hours in the fields as long as they're not missing school it's uh it, it's really really nuts and uh um we're also we're also proposing to raise the the uh, age of hazardous work on farms to um 18 it's currently 16 it's 18 for all other sectors so we're trying to bring some equity to to uh to child work and, uh, you know, not not exploit the, the kids who are often doing it, who are Latino immigrants um, from impoverished families. We would really like to see those kids protected and nurtured and, you know, succeed in school.
0: As for lawmakers willing to support the Child Labor Coalition in their work, Reed Mackey says they are there, even though they lost a key advocate on Capitol Hill at the end of last session.
8: Unfortunately, our champion of, of the last um, 30 years, um, uh, Lucille roybal Allard, just retired from Congress. Um, she was helping us with the agricultural changes that I talked about. But um, there are some folks on the Hill now who are paying quite a bit of attention. Um, Senator Schatz introduced legislation last week to raise child labor fines. And um, Representative Kildee from Michigan is about to do the same. Um Senator Durbin has been a champion in the Senate for um efforts to protect child tobacco workers, kids who work on a, a really toxic crop um they get they get um nicotine poisoning regularly, and the kids are so desperate to protect themselves that they wear black plastic garbage bags while they work in- you know often in extreme heat and so Senator Durbin has been um um putting forward a bill to to ban child labor and tobacco for several years. And um, so we do have champions, um, but there's a lot to be done to correct the problems happening right now. And we really need everybody to pitch in.
0: And when they do, one of Mackey's immediate concerns is to revisit the rules that have been governing how child farm workers are protected for the last four decades.
8: The Department of Labor has not updated child safety rules for kids who work on farms in 40 years. And uh, those updates are badly needed. I think uh, we'll see a lot of kids uh, getting hurt if, um, you know, if those protections are not updated. And they were updated for other other sectors that have child labor but not for agriculture. So it's really time. It's long overdue for those to be updated. And tobacco is one of those. Uh, we would really love to see tobacco work banned for children.
0: Reed Mackey is Director of Child Labor Advocacy at the National Consumers League and is Coordinator of the Child Labor Coalition. To learn more about their work, go to StopChildLabor.org. That's StopChildLabor.org. For Monday Morning QB, I'm Sue Goodwin.
1: To close the show, we celebrate another musical birthday this week. Keith Jarrett was born May 8, 1945, in Allentown, Pennsylvania, and would grow up to become one of the world's greatest musicians and composers. Jarrett's instrument of choice was the piano, though he was also proficient on saxophone, banjo, drums, and other instruments. Jarrett is perhaps best known for his hours-long solo improvisational concerts, including the all-time best-selling solo piano record, The Köln Concert. In lieu of an extended improvisation, we celebrate Keith Jarrett's birthday by hearing his rendition of All the Things You Are, from the 1989 album, Tribute. The song opens with a few minutes of iconic Keith solo improvisation before he's joined by bassist Gary Peacock and drummer Jack DeJohnette. Happy birthday, Keith Jarrett. <laughs> And that's our show for today. Rest in peace and power, Askiya Muhammad. Thanks to our engineers. I'm Chris Bangert-Drowns. And I'm Sue Goodwin. There's still time to donate to Monday Morning QB.
0: Call 202-588-9739. That's 202-588-9739. Or visit us online at wpfwfm.org and become a supporter of this great radio station. Please join us next Monday. Thank you for listening and for your generous support to our show and to WPFW Washington.